of you have heard of Tim Hawkins? Comedian Tim Hawkins? Oh, good. If you haven't, he's a funny dude. Christian comedian, talks about lots of crazy stuff. One of the things he talks about is prayer. Have you heard what he says about prayer? Oh, boy, there's lots of things he says about prayer. He just makes you think about the ways we do. Like one of the, the, the phrases a lot of times we use in prayer is the phrase hedge of protection. Sometimes we pray a hedge of protection around people, right? We've heard that phrase. I don't know if a lot of people know where it comes from in the book of Job and that sort of thing, but, but you can imagine when we hear that phrase, if you don't have that background, what does that mean? How many of you would rather have a hedge or a six-foot concrete wall? Yeah, yeah, we do. So, so you know, maybe we should pray that. It's, I love how he talks about it. You know, it's as if, if the devil doesn't have hedge climbers, you know. He's like, what can I do with this shrubbery? I don't know. Um, but, we, you know, we use those phrases. He talks about how we pray at mealtime. You know, we, we pray things uh, to sort of try to cover up our own bad choices. You know, like, bless this food for the nourishment of our bodies. Then it's like, you know, Big Mac, supersized fries, and a Coke. As if God will chemically transform those things into carrot sticks as we eat them. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be awesome if it worked. My parents kind of make fun of me. Apparently one day it was my turn to say the blessing at home. And uh, I prayed, and my uh, prayer that they remind me of from time to time is that, Dear God, please bless this food, even if it is just a bologna sandwich. There we go. And then, rather than me try to recreate a little Tim Hawkins, I want you to see him by video. He talks about bedtime prayers. So, uh, Josh, whenever you're ready, let's just listen. Anybody else remember that prayer? One of the ones we teach our kids. You know, when you when you think about sometimes how we we, we, we say these words and, and you wonder, you know, what we think they may be that are from. We started talking about last week uh, this new series. I called it "Quit Going to Church," and we spent last week talking about that idea. And, and really, it comes out of the way that we describe what is our Christian experience. You know, a lot of people talk about. I want to go to church, or I want to say my prayers, or you should read your Bible. We have these phrases, and and in some ways, when we use those phrases, we can miss the greater meaning. In fact, if, if we look at some of our Christian experience, 
like we did last week, what it means to, to go to church or, or more likely to be the church, we miss out on the reality that was the first century Christian experience, the depth and, and the presence of God that was part of their normal, everyday experience of what it meant to live out their faith. We've reduced sometimes that dynamic to just some of these phrases. And, and saying our prayers is probably one of them. It's a place where, like that video shows, we sort of go through the motions. We know there are times when we should, in fact, say our prayers. And for instance, if you're like my family, probably a lot of you are, when you sit down to have a meal together, you say a blessing, right? Just sort of one of the things. And in fact, we've been out in restaurants and seen other people at the restaurant pause before they eat and say the blessing. We go, oh, isn't that great? Just, you know, sort of commonality there. That's good. Maybe you're one of those, like we taught our kids, you should pray before you go to bed. And and we have these things. In fact, even in, in church world here, when you get together, there are certain times in our service where we pray. And, and Denise called me on it not so long ago. She said, you know, I usually pray right after the first song. She says, you know, a lot of times your prayer just is kind of that same formula. It just sounds like you say the same thing over and over again. It's like you kind of have your spiel, your shtick. You should maybe think about that and think about what the message is or what the song is. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm just looking at the time. There it is. I'm just going to pray. You know, we, we can get into those patterns where we sort of just, in certain circumstances, repeat the same things, like nourish our bodies with this food or, or um, now I lay me down to sleep or whatever it is. And, and in that, I think we miss the greater dynamic that is available to us in prayer, in being a part of the church, in doing these things. You know, last week when we looked at Acts chapter 2, we looked at the word devoted. And one of the things the first century church was devoted to was prayer. And we said they were devoted in the sense that it means they continued, they persevered, even and in the face of difficulty. That they were devoted to these things that marked their community, that marked their experience of the risen Jesus. And so today, let's talk about what it means to pray. Now, prayer wasn't a a new thing to those disciples anymore that's a new thing to us. The earliest followers of Jesus had prayer lives. In fact, as Jewish people in a Jewish context, their days were marked by certain prayers. In fact, Um, Most devout Jewish people would wake up in the morning and they would say a prayer upon waking up. They would say a prayer as they got dressed. They would say a prayer, even though it might be brief, as they left the house. It was normal as part of their day to recite a particular prayer at least three times a day. We call it the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you should love the Lord your God. That's what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. They They would recite that several times during the day. There was another prayer that was called uh, the 18 Blessings. And they would recite these 18 blessings. I'm thanking God, creator of heaven and earth, for things like making them an Israelite. That they were of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. That was a big deal. That God would protect Israel. That God would glorify Israel. They prayed that 
to thank God and bless them that they were free and not slaves, that he had provided them the land, and on and on these blessings would go. And they would do that several times a day. They would have these very specific, programmatic times of prayer. We see the same thing in modern uh, religious observances. If you've ever come out of, I'm not, I've been a Baptist all of my life, so we haven't used these implements, but um, those from a Catholic background often have a rosary, as I understand it, not being Catholic. It, and those beads are certain ideas that are meant to convey prayers, and often they're handled as a tangible way to remember to pray. We, we have these sorts of things that we know are prayer experiences. And into that environment, into a Jewish context with Jewish people comes a Jewish man by the name of Jesus. And he gathers around him some followers, we call them the disciples. And into their lives, he for three years invests, pours himself. And one of the things that happens over the course, it happens in other areas, but one place we see it that should stand out, does stand out to me, is in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. The disciples have a particular question to ask of Jesus. In Luke 11, verse 1, I think the scriptures are going to be up on the screen as we go. It says, one day, what's Jesus doing? Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, we've just said that these disciples being devout, good Jewish young men prayed as part of their normal experience of life, as part of their regular devotion. It was something that was, maybe we'd consider it a duty, like saying the blessing or before bed. Maybe it's something that that they would consider a discipline, which is a little different. Sort of a discipline, in my mind, conveys the idea of something you should do because it's good for you like exercise and eating right and those sorts of things we're told we need to discipline ourselves. Um, And they may have had that idea, but they saw in Jesus something different. They saw in him, when he prayed, enough of a difference between what they had experienced in their regular, daily, programmatic, I might even say prayers, to want to ask him that question. Jesus, we need you to teach us how to pray because we're praying But there's something about the way you're praying, the life that is there, the passion that is there, the experience that is there in your prayer life that we want to get. We want to understand. We want to know. And, and of course, out of that question, you may remember the the model prayer that Jesus taught them, what we call sometimes the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I don't think he gave them those words just simply to say, okay, If you want to pray right, forget all the other prayers. Forget the Shema and 18 blessings and the rising and dressing and leaving and all. Forget those prayers. Pray this wording and you'll be fine. No, I don't think that was his point at all. In that model prayer, he's demonstrating some of the things that for him made it vibrant, made it alive, made it impactful, made such an impression on his disciples that they wanted to know what's going on there. Now, rather than break down that prayer, which we've done in other contexts, I want to go a little bit of a different direction and talk about another passage of Scripture that another, in fact, word of Jesus, another thing Jesus says to to us 
that may give us a, another bit of insight into what's going on, or maybe more specifically what might be missing from our prayer life. And it's actually in the book of Revelation, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, right? Especially these days with blood wounds and all that stuff. Woohoo! book of Revelation, it's a, it's a verse that maybe many of you memorized. I memorized it in a very particular context, and maybe you did too. I memorized it in the context of evangelism, of how to tell somebody else about Jesus. And it's the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. And it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Sorry, I've memorized it in another version, even though it's up there in the NIV. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And we use that verse, and the way I learned that verse, and maybe you did too, is in the context of when you're sharing your faith, when you're telling somebody else about Jesus, the difference he makes. This is a great way to say, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Have you, you know what I'm talking about. You've heard that, right? I'm not making this up. Some of you are like, ah, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, good. Anyway, that's the way I learned it that Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. But when you back up a little bit and look at what's going on here, you find out that this isn't an evangelistic passage. In fact, it is in this part of the book of Revelation that lists letters that Jesus himself is sending to particular churches in Asia Minor. This one is going to the church at Laodicea which may not mean much to you except for that word church. It's going not to unbelievers who need to open their heart to Jesus, but to believers. And to those believers, before he says this, Jesus says some pretty harsh things. Namely, you make me want to spit up. You make me sick to my stomach. You're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold. Those aren't happy words, are they? When you look at somebody and say, you just make me sick to my stomach, is that another way of saying, I love you, honey? I'll try it later. I'll let you know. No, I won't say that. That's not a good thing to say. Those aren't happy words to give. This is the message Jesus is giving to his church, his followers, those who have claimed faith in him, those who are seeking to live out that faith, Jesus says, this is what I see. This is where you're missing the boat. And hey, I'm at the door, not of the heart, but of the church saying, hey, can I come to church here? Can can I come into your church? There doesn't seem to be much room for me in what you're doing. Which is a different emphasis to what's going on there. And he says very particularly, I want to come in, and, and the way I learned it in the old I guess that was King James. I'm going to come in and sup with you and come in and sup with him and he with you. Anybody else remember that? Now, just so we're clear, maybe that's the younger folks here. Sup is not like a greeting, like sup. It's not what it means. It's not what it means at all, just to be clear. It's a different thing entirely. Short for, for supper, you might say. Although every time you read that now, you're going to think that, so I'm sorry. Nonetheless, um, It means to eat with, to have a meal with you. I want to come in. Now, we talked briefly last week about the significance of that in the Near East because to share a meal with someone in that culture 
was a big deal. It wasn't a small thing. In fact, even today there are those in, from that cultural background that will have casual meetings, uh, just maybe over a drink or something, but it is an honor to be invited to someone's home to sit at their dining room table, almost like you're entering into the sanctuary of their home and you're getting together in an intimate setting. It was a huge thing to invite someone to eat with you. For, for an Orthodox Jewish person to say that is a big deal. And so the invitation from Jesus is that I don't want just the, the religious trappings from you. I don't want just the duty or the discipline aspect of what it means to be a person of faith from you. I want the intimacy that comes in relationship in sitting around a dining room table and sharing a meal, a leisurely meal, one that takes way longer than usually ours do in this culture, with you sharing life together. That's the invitation that Jesus is making here. That's what he's offering, not to the unbeliever, but to the one who's already part of the church, who has sort of had that commitment to Christ, but sort of goes about life as if it doesn't really matter. And Jesus says, I want, I'm, I want you to invite me, and I want to sit down at a meal with you. I want to, to do life with you, to share life with you, to have that sort of a thing, which is why there are times when, I think we even mentioned this, I don't know if I mentioned it in service or on Wednesday night, but you remember Zacchaeus? I think we sang the song Wednesday night, didn't we? Did we sing it Wednesday night? Okay, I thought we did. Sing it a lot. Zacchaeus up in the tree. Jesus says, you come down, as the song tells us why, for I'm going to your house today. Don't you love a generous song in church? Was it only at my little church in Winsburg? That's why I'm not in the worship team. Do you not know the song? I'm going to make you all stand up and sing it if you're not And a wee little man was he, who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord and asked the Savior to come. He looked into the tree. That's why he put the words on the screen, right? No, none of that. But there it is. And as he calls Zacchaeus out of the tree, Zacchaeus says, look, this is what I'm going to do to make it right. Jesus says, I'm going to your house. I'm going to what? Have a meal with you. And all the religious leaders are bent out of shape because it's not just that Jesus talked to a tax collector, to a sinner, to a horrible person. It's not just that he offered him hope or salvation. It's that Jesus would dare share an intimate meal with someone like Zacchaeus. That was an offense because it implied a level of community and communion that wasn't considered acceptable to do. It's as if, uh, as one writer put it, Jesus offered to keep company with Zacchaeus. I don't know if we use that phrase these days, to keep company with somebody. Maybe it's a a little dated in its origins or a little old-fashioned in its wording, but that's the idea that's there, that we, in prayer then, by the very invitation of Jesus, 
can keep company with him. It's not a rote recitation of certain lines that we learn. It's not a duty that we have to do in certain circumstances that dictate it. It's not even only a discipline that it's good for us if we do it. No, it's the opportunity to keep company with Jesus himself. Who's the most important person in your life? Think about it. Don't say it. We're not name dropping. Who's the most like powerful, wealthy, important, prestigious person in your life? got that person in mind? Like if you were to say it, everybody would be like, wow, you know them? That's cool. Because I know them. You got that person? Somebody impress you? Somebody that if they were to call you and say, hey, I'm in town, can we get together? You would definitely put it on Facebook. I'm having coffee, or I'm having breakfast, or I'm having lunch with this person, right? You got that person? Everybody's impressed with ourselves? So, how much more is it impressive that you could keep company with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? The one who sets up kings and deposes them. The one who measures the universe by the span of his hand. The one who said, through his ministry, the blind would see, the lame would be healed, the captive would be released. Who, for you, was willing to undergo a torturous and agonizing death on the cross. And who, for you, rose again. This is the one that all of Scripture points us towards the reality that we can keep company with Him. That He has provided access. If you've taken the Truth Project, it's one of the most memorable lines of it for me. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but but as uh, Del Tackett's talking, he talks about the phrase, sometimes we use when we pray. And the phrase out of Scripture is that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, or we can boldly approach the throne of grace. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that. And he makes the point. He says, boy, I just don't think Christians understand what that means. Do you really believe that? Do you really really? Because if you really believe that, prayer wouldn't be a duty. Prayer wouldn't be a discipline. Prayer, prayer wouldn't be an obligation. Prayer would be, I can't wait because I get to go into the very throne room of the King of Heaven and Earth. I don't have to tiptoe in. I don't have to sneak in. I don't have to be afraid as I go in. I'm allowed to boldly, to with confidence approach the very throne of God, the throne of heaven and earth. That's what prayer is for us. That access has been granted. I've I've been to Europe. I got a chance a long time ago when I was a freshman in college to do a semester in England. Saw some incredible castles over there. The history in Europe, England particularly, if you've ever been to those sorts of places, is remarkable. The the architectural detail, um, the the money that went into building these things, incredible places. But you know, as much as we saw a lot of things, we were just down the road from Buckingham Palace um, in a little church we interned at, and you may have heard of that thing called the changing of the guard. You know, I was never invited to go into that castle. I was just waiting, waiting for the queen to call. 
Come over for a spot of tea. Well, I don't know if I have time, Queenie. Yeah, that's not how you would do it, right? The Queen called. The Queen invited us over. We're dropping everything. Because it's the Queen. That would have been cool. Now that's a story that I don't have to tell. And yet, Scripture tells us, that verse tells us, that is our right as believers in Jesus for what He has done for us. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, and there meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords Himself to keep company with God. What does keeping company with God look like? There's some snippets in Scripture. And maybe when we think of it, we think it's got to be certain formalities. But as we go through we see there are times when people didn't necessarily keep company with God in a nice, formal way. How about Abraham? I think it's in Genesis 18, right, right before um, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. God is letting Abraham know of his plan. And Abraham haggles, bargains with God. God, uh, if it was for just just 50 people, 100 people, and he's kind of haggling God down over how many righteous people would be in that city that God would spare the city. You're not supposed to talk to God that way, you think? No, you have to have a certain dignity and a certain reverence, yes, but in keeping company with him, Abraham was able to have that kind of conversation. The Psalms are full of episodes where people keep company with God. David is is one of the chief writers of much of the Psalms. And when you read that, there are some things he says in there as examples. You know, these are these are songs of worship. These are canonized. These are in Scripture. These are okay, we would even say, by that standard with God. And, and David would say things in Psalm chapter 6 like, I'm sick at heart, God. How long will you restore? Or in, in Psalm chapter 13, he would say, how long must I struggle and how long will the enemy or the unrighteous have the upper hand? Almost complaining a bit to God. Verse uh, Chapter 35, how long, God, will you look on and do nothing? Ooh, do you want to say that, David? How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Psalm, Psalm, one more, Psalm 79, how long, O oh Lord, will you be angry with us? David had the audacity, we might say to speak to God in that way because there was an intimacy there. A man, Scripture tells us, after God's own heart. A man who knew how to keep company, to use the phrase we've used today with God, and would talk to him in these ways. Now, there's a lot of great stuff in Abraham's life and in David's life and in the Psalms. And we see that those moments of haggling or complaining don't always stay there. Sometimes David was wise enough in keeping company with God, he would ask him for advice. In 2 Samuel, he says, God, should I go back to Judah? God says, yes. He says, okay, which city? Because he needs God's direction. He needs God's advice. He's thinking about his future, thinking about what's next, the right move. He asks God for his advice. That would be a good thing to do. And then there's good old Jacob, who's wrestling with God. Didn't know it at the time, but when he figured it out, what did he say? I will not let you go until you bless me. You think about your prayer life in that way. What if you prayed, you kept company with God with that idea in mind? God, I will not let you go 
hear you bless them. God, I, I, I am so desperate for something from you. I am not letting go. I need your, your presence, your power, your help. I'm not letting go. I'm going to keep company with you, God, until you, until you bless me. It's in those kind of ideas that prayer goes from a particular place and a particular time and a particular recitation to maybe what Paul had in mind in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says those words that you may be familiar with, pray without ceasing or pray continually. That's another translation for it. Pray all the time. And now, that's not practical, is it? If prayer looks like this. I mean, maybe for a preacher. They can't. But for a regular person, you can't do that, right? You've got work to do. You've got responsibilities, family, job, whatever it is. You can't do that all the time. But, but the encouragement of Paul in that, that list is to pray all the time, to pray without ceasing, as if there is a sense that it's not a small slice a certain few minutes at a certain time in certain circumstances that we pray, but it is the realization that God is always with you. It says that in the Great Commission, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And that all it takes, because of what He has done, wherever we are is to recognize that we can approach His throne of grace, that we have access not just to congressman, a senator, even the president of the United States, not even the Queen of England. We have access to the King of Heaven and Earth. And that we can keep company with Him. That He's right there, anxious to hear from us, willing to hear our complaints, to struggle with us, to advise us, whatever it is, that we keep company. Because we don't just say our prayers, recite some words, and move on. But we have communion. We have Access to God Himself. There's a story, I don't remember the title of the book offhand, but the, the book is by Brennan Manning, and he writes a lot about a contemplative life. And he tells the story of a of a woman whose father was elderly and was very ill, dying of cancer. And she asked her pastor if he would go over to the house and visit with her. And of course, being a pastor type, he said, Yes, I'd be glad to. So he went to the house and knocked on the door and was let in. And the daughter showed him to her father's room. And he walked in. And there was the father in the bed. And he rose in the chair. And he said, oh, sir, I see you are expecting me. He said, uh, not really. Who are you? Well, this is awkward. I'm the pastor of the church. Your daughter attends. She asked me to come over. I just saw the empty chair. And I assumed that you knew I was coming. He said, well, it's fine. I'm glad you're here. But why don't you close the door for a few minutes? daughter to overhear this, but, but that chair has some significance. See, I've always had a problem with prayer. I went to church all my life, and I can't tell you how many sermons I heard about prayer. And one day I went up to the pastor and said, every time you talk about prayer, it's just over my head. I don't understand what you're getting at. And so the pastor did what pastors do. He said, listen, I have a book for you. It's written by a Swiss theologian. It's the best book on contemplative prayer you'll ever read. And he gave it to me. And 
I brought it home and sat down, excited. Maybe I'd get some answers. And within the first couple of pages, I didn't even understand. I had to look up 10 or 12 words just to understand what the guy was writing. And so the next Sunday, I took it back to the pastor and handed it to him and said, thanks. I wanted to say under my breath for nothing. So I just gave up. Figured prayer was maybe too hard or too confusing or, or something that I just couldn't get it. Until one day I was talking to a friend of mine. And I told him about my struggles, about prayer, that I didn't feel like I knew how to pray or, or what prayer was. And it always seemed like, like such a, a burden to even do it, like I wasn't ever doing it right. And he said, well, well you know, prayer is really just conversation. Prayer is just conversing with God like, like we're doing here. So why don't you try this? When you go home later, sit down in a chair and put an empty chair across from you. Picture, pretend that Jesus is sitting in that chair. And when he's sitting in that chair, just start talking. Like, like you and I are talking. Just picture. I mean, he promises he'll never leave us or forsake us. That's what he said. He's there. So just talk to him. Just talk to him like we're talking to him. Okay, I, I told him I'd try it. And you know, it changed the way I viewed everything. In fact, that's why that chair is there now. Because in bed and I can't do a whole lot. I'm kind of just here. I just look over at that chair and picture Jesus. I talk to him all the time. Not when my daughter's home, of course. She'd think I was crazy and put me in the funny farm. She already thinks I have enough fun. I don't want her to hear that. That's why I don't close the door. But that's what I do. I just picture Jesus. And I talk to him. Well, they had a visit like often pastors and people do, and they went on for a while. And finally the pastor did the pastoral thing and prayed with him. And he went back to his office with a different appreciation of some things until a few days later he got a call from his young parishioner, the daughter, who said, Pastor, I want you to know I'm so appreciative of the visit, but my, my dad passed away earlier this afternoon. Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. There's just something weird about it. What do you mean there's something weird about it? Did, did he not die peacefully? No, no. No, he, he seemed to die peacefully. I saw him at about 2 o'clock. I went in and and he told me one of his crazy, corny dad jokes, and he told me to give him a kiss on the cheek because I was running a few errands. And I came home about an hour later, and he had passed away. Well, that doesn't sound so strange. Honey, what, what, what's the problem? Well, here's the strange part. Just a few minutes before he died, for some reason, he leaned over and placed his head in that chair beside the pillow. represented their presence with God, the Savior, right there, listening, even in sickness, even in the difficulty that he faced. He knew God was just that close, and in the last moments of his life, all he could think to do was to surrender himself to the one he'd kept company with so many hours all those days. doesn't require a certain setting. You don't have to only do it at certain times of day. It's an awareness. It's the reality that God himself invites you whenever, wherever, and for whatever reason to boldly approach his throne of grace. And there, you can find mercy and 
receive grace today in this present moment. Would you pray with me? Lord, in these moments, it's my hope that as a people, we'll quit saying our prayers. Quit looking at prayers some duty or obligation that is necessary in certain occasions for certain reasons. But rather, Father, we will be a people whose hopes and dreams and attention is so focused on you Whether it's in a building like this, in a church, in a service. Whether it's in our homes, before a meal, before bed, first thing when we wake up. Whether it's in a moment of crisis, of uncertainty. But Father, we will live in the awareness of the presence of our great God. who share, as the psalmist did, our our complaints and our frustrations and our hurts with you. People who seek your advice, as David and so many others in Scripture do. And yes, people who sometimes even wrestle with you. Not letting go until we know your grace. Thank you, Father, that you have made prayer possible through the gift of your Son. person of power or influence, but to the very King of heaven and earth, to the one who loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, may we see what we call saying our prayers is sometimes so much more, so much more significant and so much more Maybe have religious experiences, but don't know you as Father. Who haven't received the gift of salvation that you alone offer, that comes through turning from sin and turning in faith to you. And Lord, if there's someone here who needs to call upon you today, to confess they are a sinner and to turn and to trust in you as Lord, may today be the day that their lives change forever. Thank you for all you have done. Through Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray.